a tech ninja talks about 2021 and beyond. I'm Tanya Hall and joining me is Gary Shapiro, author and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association, the organization behind CES. Welcome, Gary. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you for having me on your show. Of course. What's the mission of the Consumer Technology Association? Well, we are a nonprofit trade association representing American technology companies. And our mission is to allow, expand, encourage innovation. We want to grow the industry and make people's lives better. And that's what innovation does. In the three decades as the head of CTA, you've had a front row seat to one of the most extraordinary periods of technological change in human history. As we step into the new decade, what tech sectors are you watching most closely? Wow, has it been three decades? Um, it's been a quite, a, quite a, I've grabbed a rising start. I've been extremely fortunate to be allowed to participate in the, this industry that's literally changed the world. And we've seen it no more than COVID. I mean, because of COVID, the industry's best moments have come forth and people have appreciated the fact that they could stay connected, that kids could still learn, even though it's remotely, that basically healthcare could, could still go on as we're fighting this terrible disease. Um, what I'm excited about going forward, I am excited about so many different areas. I mean, artificial intelligence to me, it, it could solve so many of the world's basic problems. The things that we've been struggling with since humankind, disease, sickness, accidents, uh, cancer, um, education, mobility. Artificial intelligence is gonna solve all these problems. We'll have different, different issues perhaps, we have to struggle with and we have to get there. But to me, artificial intelligence will allow us to do some of these horrible jobs that people are struggling with, whether it's making a pizza dough in a refrigerated area, wearing a suit in very uncomfortable conditions or going to uh, you know, the top of an apartment building trying to clean it or other hazardous jobs that basically have high mortality rates, frankly, or illness rates. And I think we're going to get better at that. Or if you just look at the number of people that die just in the United States alone, 30 to 35,000 from car accidents, and it's estimated 90% of those are, are avoidable or human error. We're going to end those. But I think this year, and well, at least in 2020, we'll see that the number of accidents have gone down in part because of active collision avoidance and in part because frankly, we've driven fewer miles. We'll also see pollution has gone down. Now, why is that? Well, same reasons. But the thing is, we're also creating as an industry, we're one of the cleanest industries there are and we're using less and less energy. Our products are getting better, they're costing less, and they're actually um, making a healthier environment. If you think about that, there's so many you know, second and third tier effects. So people that are working from home, they're not driving anywhere. And they're working at home because of our products, whether it's laptops, computers, tablets, phones, uh, different types of cameras, microphones, things like that. And also same thing with cars. We're shifting to a world of electric cars, of self-driving. Uh, we're, we're getting closer. Every new set of car models that comes out has features in there, which are safety features, which are enabled by technology. Um, also internet access anywhere allows us to be productive, to do things. It allows us basically it's freed up this concept of city, suburban and rural, and it's dramatically changing. And so the estimates we had just one year ago, I think are inaccurate. 
as to where people will live in the next several years. And that's because of changes in mobility, and it's because of changes in technology, and it's changed, and I'll say one good thing about this horrible pandemic, it's changed our view of the world about what people must do. They must go to work every day, nine to five. They must be physically with everyone. What we're learning is it's more of a blended world, is that we wanna be with each other physically, but with technology, uh, we can do more and we can live anywhere. And that's gonna affect so many different industries. And it's gonna be uncomfortable for some. Uh, if you're in the real estate industry, this could be a very difficult time. If you're building office buildings, if you're building things like that. But if you think about it, I was in a phone with the president of a major university and they were asking about their new plans for uh, this building and this technology innovation campus they're proud about. And I was like, you know, you should be building rooms that allow broadcast and production. You should be building a building with windows that open. You know, for some reason, the last 30 or 40 years, we've built windows, buildings, can, the windows don't open, which is absurd frankly. So those are things where COVID has changed what we're doing in so many different ways. It's changed where we work and it's going to change where we live and how we get around. And technology and the, the companies that I'm privileged and honored to represent, they represent all the good things about how life is going to get better for all of us. So what if we have fewer visits to the emergency room and there's fewer collision repair shops and auto insurance rates go down? I can live with all that. Industries are going to be disrupted. I recognize that, but that's where we've always been as an industry. We've always disrupted other industries. I started out my career, honestly, because there was a lawsuit against one of our products and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. But along the way, we lost the first iteration of the lawsuit. It was saying that a recording device off of television, the VCR is illegal. And that case went up to the Supreme Court, the Sony Betamax case, it was heard two times. And we won the, the manufacturers against Hollywood by a five to four decision, one little vote made all the difference. In that case, not a lot of a plethora of all sorts of other products which allow recording. And it's basically says copyright owners are really important, but so are patent owners and so is the, the good of the general public. And that's something that has totally changed technology. And I was proud to be part of that case. And that honestly launched my career and focused on innovation and policies that favor innovation. So even on that note, how will technological advancements and disruptions like, like that intersect with societal and cultural norms? Will those norms be barriers or express lanes to technology acceptance? I think we have to start recognizing that there's trade-offs and, and there's, there's legitimate arguments on both sides. So you could take the example of, of privacy versus um, artificial intelligence. China's taken the position there's no such thing as as privacy, there's only artificial intelligence and data and all data is available to it and it evaluates every citizen. And they, they're doing a great job actually. And as they've done a great job with COVID because privacy wasn't an issue. You, if you wanted to go anywhere outside your home, you had to have an app on your phone. You had to have your temperature taken. You had to control your, your limits of travel. Um, and they combined all this together in a way which was phenomenal in shutting down COVID in China. The United States is, has the exact opposite. We value freedom of movement, freedom of our people, freedom of everything. And we have a lot of doubters of science here. And, and it's just our, the fact that we are a very diverse country uh, with different views and very libertarian oriented, which I generally think is a good thing. And that's what's led to our amazing innovation. We have, a, we have the most diverse country in the world in terms of immigration, in terms of different people. We don't have thousands of years of people living together and they resolve the tough issues like abortion and capital punishment and all these. We still fight over basic issues because we basically are a young country that comes from all over the world 
with our people and our culture. And we have so many different religions and, and backgrounds. So it's a, there's trade-offs there. So what we have to recognize is that as, as perhaps Israel is a good example, they trade off security and privacy. They recognize because their lives are in danger, sometimes you give up a little bit of your privacy for security. And if your life really is in danger, then you have to give that up. So what I'm concerned about is general rules that say you can't do this or you must do that. What I'm saying is let's match together. Just the way we go, when we go on an airplane now, because of 9-11, we give up a little bit of our privacy to make sure that everyone in that plane is safe and that no one has a bomb. That's something we have to do. And there's always that balancing test. So if you had a general rule that every time you go to anywhere, including your own home, you always have to be security checked, we wouldn't put up with that because we don't feel that same level of lack of safety in most of our everyday activities. But in unsafe environments, for example, going to a ball game, a crowded arena, or maybe even a movie theater someday, uh, we'll, be, we'll, we'll go through that. So if you look at every area, whether it's privacy, it's the ability to, um, to get better healthcare, for example, things like that, I think most Americans have said we're willing to give it up if it's reasonable. And I think Apple proved that years ago when the Apple phone said, if you want to help humanity give up your part of your healthcare information, and make it accessible to others on a uh, obviously a anonymous basis, but we'll use it. Overwhelmingly, people signed up to do that. Um, so I think because they see the group benefit in doing that. And I think that's the direction we'll head in. I think the reason we didn't do as well as we could have in COVID is we didn't have those type of discussions at the outset. We really didn't know what we were dealing with a lot. Um, and we're still trying to find our way around this, this thing, but I think it'll be instructional as we go forward. I would agree. Most people really weren't ready. Um, you've mentioned AI a few times. What tech convergence do you see on the horizon that may cause the next big market disruption? And what signals should we be following on that? Well, there's so many different um, market disruptions which can still occur. I mean, for example, in the energy area, we have a long way to go in terms of uh, having sources of energy which can meet our needs as a society. And that, that's still important. And electric cars are important, but that electricity has to come from somewhere, whether it's decreasingly obviously coal, but increasingly natural gas because we have a lot of it and we're fracking. Um, but there's, there's solar, there's wind, there's other things. So I would take the energy as one area. Mobility is another area of enormous disruption. And we know where we're going in that. We know we're going to self-driving, which is what people want increasingly and is essential. And it empowers disabled people, it empowers old, older people. It's, and obviously it saves lives. And, and even more, it saves a lot of in injuries and saves costs for consumers. So that's the right way to go for, for transportation. For education, we have a long way to go. I mean, we, we've learned from this experience that we need broadband, we need it widely available, but we also need the ability to recognize that students are individual learners and they don't do so well just by mimicking what's in the classroom with a video with a boring teacher that's not ready. I mean, the, the spring was a disaster across the country. Uh, speaking as a father of two young children, it's been very difficult. In education, some people are audio learners, some people are visual learners, some people can read and learn. We, we haven't gotten to the personalized nature of education yet, which I think we have to. You know, the books on tape started out, or the world's greatest teachers, in a sense, getting people educated in one way with some of the world's best um, teachers, but we're, we're learning um, in different ways on education, a long way to go there. Uh, with AI, there's so much that could happen there, whether it's, and you can combine this with some of the other areas. Um, obviously with AI, everything I just talked about, you can learn as you go. And to the extent you get smarter that way, your, your, your AI capabilities, 
your car, for example, you get in your car and your car seat could tell you that you're likely to get sick unless you do X, Y, and Z based on the it, it looking at your biometrics and everybody else who's gone before you. Healthcare has such an ability to expand as data is available and it's shared and it's acted upon. The, the truth is the dirty little secret of the medical profession is they do things because they've always done them that way. And they don't report on results that are not significant that don't show a benefit. So you keep doing things the old way you learn, you do. I, I attend a huge number of medical conferences because of my life and, and because of what we're doing in CTA and healthcare has been growing so quickly. Um, there's so much room to grow in healthcare in, in eliminating pain, eliminating disease and figuring out what actually works based on your genetics, based on the experience that other doctors have, which really is not shared today. It's shocking when you figure this out that basically healthcare treatments are kept with the patient and based on what the doctor thinks happened and they do things and they, they, it's what they've learned in medical school at that time, from the size of the suture they use to how they treat a patient to what they do. I mean, it's, it's just frankly incredible. But what technology has the ability to do is first of all, allow a lot more data to be gathered and gathered at home with remote healthcare, with technology. And then you can start correlating the data with, with your health and with everything else. So we'll have massive amounts of data in the future, which will make us all healthier and not only healthier, but, but less pain, but more pain-free. I mean, the reality is a lot of people are in pain. A lot of people are suffering, not only in the US, but around the world. And we have the ability to change that in our lifetimes. And I think we should take that opportunity. The reason we've done so well, what I'm excited about is really, I credit smartphones a lot of it because smartphones contain, every one of them contain a lot of sensors. Those sensors are um, on um, basically little chips that, that actually move. They're immense. Uh, electromechanical systems is what they are. And they, because we're producing hundreds of millions of smartphones, those little sensors now cost like pennies each. So you could, entrepreneurs and people that are creative are putting together in amazingly clever ways, gathering the data, figuring it out, sharing the data. And that's gonna be, now all that data combined with smart people and consumers seeing the benefit of it is going to just change the world we live in dramatically. And we're such at the beginning of this phenomenal AI re revolution that's gonna make our lives better in almost every category of living. I'm pretty excited about it. Your newest book, Ninja Future, Secrets to Success in the New World of Innovation, offers tips on being flexible and nimble in this fast-changing environment. What are some of the attributes a leadership team must possess to succeed in, in, in maybe this coming decade? Well, there are several. First, I'm big on diversity, because if you hire people that are, look like and act like you, you're not getting different opinions. And that's really important. And that's what it's, it's an American strength, actually, is our diversity, but it could also be a corporate strength. There's a lot of research which backs that up. I mean, it does cause some um, rumbling and some resentment sometimes, but I think if you're just hiring really great people and focusing on diversity is one of the elements of getting the great people, you'll be good. Second thing is teamwork. I used to scoff at MBAs and 10 years ago, but MBAs, um, I realized, do two things in, that are increasingly important in, in innovation. One is, is that you learn to work as a team. So you recognize the strength and we, everyone has strengths and weaknesses and you work with them and around them. And second is you also work cross-culturally and, and globally. And I think that'll be very important. Another thing is, is adaptability. And uh, I, uh, two of my books talk about ninja and, and why ninjas are so important. I have a black belt in Taekwondo, although it's a uh, Korean art form, ninjas, Japanese, it's a little, um, 
flexibility there, but basically it means if you take a situation, you solve the problem. The biggest compliment I could give someone is that they're a ninja. I was telling my son just yesterday, he solved a number of problems we've had this past week and he was a ninja and he was beaming because he knows that's the high praise for me. But a ninja is someone who, who sees a situation and doesn't come back and say no. And, and all the people that are listening to you are probably successful because they are listening to you have probably understood that they've succeeded in their careers because when they were presented with a situation, they didn't come back to their boss and say, I can't do it. They came back and they say, you know, how about if we do this or try a different approach? As I tell our employees, if you see a brick wall, you know, don't come back and be stopped by it, jump over it, become a superhero, do something. Come to me with a solution to the problem. Don't just say, I can't solve the problem unless you really can't solve the problem. Um, and that, and that's, that's, that's part of it is, is agility. And as it's, it's Darwin uh, is credited with saying, although he never actually said it, and I've been thinking about this since the, in, in late January when I was hit with the hard facts of this pandemic, was it's not the strongest that survive, it's not the fastest that survive, it's those who can adapt the quickest which survive. So the mantra, and I gave that to our employees immediately, uh, and even our, our board members in early February 2nd, we actually had a, quite a discussion about this pandemic that my wife initiated and demanded. Uh, talking about the stages of grief and how we are being blind to this pandemic, which is going to totally affect our lives, is that the, the adaptability was what we got really good at. We, we were canceling things quickly. We were adjusting them digitally. We were preparing to be out of the office. We were, we were planning. We were doing all sorts of things from the get-go, uh, planning for this pandemic. Um, and sadly, it followed the course that we had predicted it would. And, and, you know, the good news is we're almost out of this with some vaccines, which we were, I think we're very fortunate to get because the history, I mean, even with the AIDS virus, we haven't had a vaccine for that and many other viruses. So this is really fabulous that we're seeing the light at the end of this tunnel, but that's the ninja attributes are important. And, and, you know, I try to be like a ninja, but the truth is, it's like they say, you plan for everything and then you hit the battlefield and all your plans go away. But the ability to work together as teams, I think we've benefited from a very strong volunteer board and, and, a, and a leadership team, which has worked well with each other for many, many years and gives each other the benefit of the doubt. So those are some of the leadership principles that we've been using ourselves. And I, and I credit you because you're the first person to actually bring up them in that context. And we've just been doing it without thinking about why we're doing it in a sense. We're doing it because we had to do it and we had to adjust. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, thank you for sharing those insights, Gary. Quite inspiring. Gary Shapiro, author and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association and the, or the organization behind CES. If somebody wants to connect with you, Gary, maybe they want to get a copy of your book or uh, follow uh, your event. How can they do that? Well, we have two websites, ces.teca, ces.tech for the CES. And for the association, it's cta.tech, cta.teca.tech. Um, and of course, if you want the book, any of the, it's, it's been a, it's any of the available websites that sell books that have it. It's in a, I actually read the audio version, pretty proud of that, uh, at least the last book, and it's available in different languages around the world. I noticed that. I'm actually, I just listened to it on Audible myself, Gary. Thanks so much for, for putting that Audible. And uh, you're quite the ninja yourself. Thanks for joining <laughs> Thank us. Thank you. That's a high compliment. And so are you. <laughs> oh, thank you and find more of my interviews right here on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify, or tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.